was a modern society of exploration, one where we all came together to celebrate discovery. This is what we've built. It starts with stories at the frontiers of courage and curiosity and the storytellers who take us there. I'm Savani Babu. I'm Sabine K. Bergman. Welcome to Hidden Compass, the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Hidden Compass, the podcast. You made it just in time for the last episode of season two. Yes, it is the last episode of season two. It is also nearly the end of 2021, which means you have made it there as well. So congratulations to all of you. Well done. And to us, because it's been quite the year. I'm Savani, by the way. Oh, yes. And I'm Sabine Harudavas. And it's, it's good to be here. I know this has been a hard year for a lot of people. But as we so often say, you know, hardship and hope are not mutually exclusive. And we have gotten actually quite used to holding both tragedy and hope in the same moments. We have. We have. I mean, it is it is a cliche, but there's a lot for us to be grateful for, even though this has been a volatile and difficult and challenging year. Yes. And since since we're talking in cliches, I have to say for me, at the heart of it is community. You know, the people who I care about in my life who show up for me on a personal level, but also I really... I really love that part of what we do is celebrating remarkable individuals and individuals who are wading into that dark, complicated, scary place themes to find hope and to hold both at the same moment. And it is, I have been, I've been really inspired by a lot of the people that we work with, by the writers who go to these places and the lengths to which they go to celebrate certain voices or to shed light on certain subjects. The speakers we've had in the speaker series, I have been so humbled that these people exist, let alone that we get to work with them. So that has been amazing. Definitely. And just a side note on the speaker series, we are getting ready to announce the first speakers of 2022. Actually, we are announcing the first speakers of 2022. They're on our events page of our website. And They're all talking to us about their work and their work centers around this idea of of confronting humanity's greatest challenges and opportunities. And, And we're talking about things like the plastic waste crisis to unlikely breakthroughs in medicine and penguins, because who doesn't love penguins? Yes, penguins. Hurrah. That's in March. Yes. (laughs) Mark your calendar for penguins. Yes. I'm a fan of penguins. We're all fans of penguins. But yeah, going back to things we're we're grateful for, and community is certainly big for me as well. But around the holidays, I also very much start to think more about family and think about family a lot. But this time of year, and I think especially especially for me, because I I missed a lot of this when I lived in other places. And so now to actually get to look forward to seeing my family on the holidays and being grateful that, you know, knock on wood, that everyone has managed to stay healthy during the last couple of years, uh, and those types of things, and, and friends and family, really. And so a lot to be grateful for. A lot of it centers around people and community and, uh, and the folks who've been there for us through lots of things. Yes. Thank you to all of you. 
Yes. Yes. And, you know, as we meditate in these themes of darkness and hope and hardship and bravery of going to places in order to face that that broad spectrum of truth. Uh, I think it's pretty fitting that we end this year and this season of the podcast with this particular story. It was written from the perspective of a teenager from a generation that frankly has had to deal with a lot. Yes. And as you'll hear in the interview, this is also one of those pieces that really evolved from concept to publication in a remarkable way. And you will hear from Brandon McWilliams, who is the author of this story. It's called A Constant Push for Perfection. It was in our winter 2019 issue. Brandon was is one of the youngest writers we've published, possibly the youngest writer we've published. We're not entirely sure between him and another. But uh, it, it was published in 2019 in our human and nature department. And it touches on themes of nature and beauty and mental health and hope. And it very rightfully won an award. It won a Solus Award. Uh, these are annual prizes awarded for each year's best travel stories. It won silver in the young traveler category. And we loved publishing this piece and speaking with Brandon. So stay tuned for that conversation. Yes. Yes. Stay tuned for that. But first, sit back and journey with us as Brandon McWilliams takes us to Washington State's rugged North Cascades, where he confronts the hardships of wilderness and the mental health crisis of a generation. A Constant Push for Perfection by Brandon McWilliams Read by Savani Babu Stumbling my way up the first of many boulder fields, the sun glaring in my eyes and sweat dripping from every pore, I was already disheartened. This month-long mountaineering excursion into Washington's northern Cascades wasn't turning out to be the carefree nature experience that I had needed it to be. That wondrous feeling I had remembered experiencing as a child was nowhere to be seen. No, this was just work. Hard work. Somehow, this is even worse than what I left behind, I thought, as I slipped off the mossy edge of a boulder, barely avoiding a faceplant onto a sharp granite flake. After hours of endless ascent and a couple more slips, I crested the boulder field and entered a moss-hung evergreen forest, chasing a glimmer of hope. Then, the cast-iron clouds that had been ominously building all day erupted into a drenching storm. Just a few days earlier, I was living a different reality. As a 17-year-old, I moved through a world of conflicting messages. Everyone had an opinion on how I should live my life, from the poster in my English classroom that told me to follow my dreams, to the relative who told me that money is the key to happiness. Day and night, I was bombarded. Plan for your future, people would say. What you do now impacts the rest of your life. Have fun. You're only young once. Don't be so spoiled. Life isn't just handed to you. Remember, always be yourself. But don't be too weird, or you'll never make any friends. Are you politically active? Do you play a musical instrument, a sport? You're doing volunteer work, right? How many languages have you learned so far? You've got to become a well-rounded person. Only take classes you love. But also, take every AP class you can. You've got to be the best at whatever you do. Or what's the point? And on and on, until the voices all blurred into one dull roar. The transition from childhood to adulthood is always a difficult time, 
Yet for my generation, Gen Z, the struggle is particularly fraught as young adults across the country deal with mental health emergencies and rising suicide rates. The number of children hospitalized for attempted suicide doubled between 2008 and 2015. Suicide among girls aged 10 to 19 rose by 70% between 2010 and 2016. We have the worst mental health of any generation polled by the American Psychological Association, and more than 90% of us experience some combination of depression, anxiety, and stress. And most of us can't even buy a beer yet. Experts are conflicted as to the cause of our anguish. Maybe it's the web of political, financial, and environmental crises. Perhaps the advent of social media and the pervasiveness of technology makes forming a unique, healthy identity difficult. Or it could be all of those factors and more, working in hideous tandem. For me, it was the combination of constant, lofty expectations surrounding me, along with the specter of student debt and the constant stream of glittering, flawless lives on social media that drove me to think that I had only one slim chance for a successful future. Any deviation from the correct path would bring me unfulfilled potential and sadness. The only remedy was a constant push for perfection. But after a grueling school year spent sprinting from AP classes to varsity crew practice to volunteer work to ACT study sessions, I was exhausted. If this was how my life was going to be to achieve success, I thought, I might as well throw in the towel now. I was wet. The trees were wet, the ground was wet, my underwear was wet. I quickly began to question what I had been thinking. In childhood, nature had always brought me joy and peace. It brought the taste of sun-warmed blackberries. It brought the soft, reassuring rustling of leaves and chirping of birds. It brought long, meandering walks with my mother. I desperately wanted that peace and happiness to be part of my life again. I saw it as the one spark that would keep me afloat. When I shouldered the heaviest pack I had ever carried and stepped onto that Washington trail, away from the chatter of the world and the internet, I thought that maybe, just maybe, nature could be my passion. But this was not the tranquility that I remembered. The rainstorm went on for four days, soaking me as I thrashed through bushes, lunged over jagged deadfalls, crawled under 20-foot walls of grasping branches. When I stumbled into the clearing or glade that was our makeshift campsite for the night, I would collapse, tired to the bone and covered in scrapes and bruises. Then I would realize that there was even more work to do. Tents had to be raised, food cooked, gear cleaned and dried. I barely made it into my sleeping bag every night before unconsciousness took me. Some break this was, I would think bitterly. This was just as much of a struggle as what I had tried to escape. One morning, as we were slogging our way through a particularly dense section of forest, my musings on my burning legs, bruised shoulders, and damp socks was interrupted. I looked up from my feet. I was surrounded by perfectly straight pillars of tree trunks, 50 feet tall. Their canopy protected a bed of verdant green moss, which covered the forest floor like a living carpet. In the middle of this pristine cathedral sat a massive boulder that was slowly being consumed by the earth, with licorice ferns and huckleberry colonizing its top. As we skirted around the edge of this monolith, 
the utter stillness of the place struck me. Where did this come from? It didn't occur to me until that night that I hadn't thought about the ache in my feet all day after that. The rain finally relented as we broke the tree line and zigzagged our way up the flank of the middle Cascade Glacier to our first rest day. I was once again taken aback, not only by the sunset that blazed across the sky, reflecting on the cool blue of the glacier, but also by the smile that was creeping across my face. I was cold, wet, hungry, and tired. But I couldn't seem to shake a feeling of joy. Being in this place, witnessing such a wonder as I worked at my limit, I felt privileged to be there. Somehow, the distance between me and my destination seemed less like an obstacle and more like an opportunity. How strange. Kool-Aid Lake provided another moment of awe. Despite our constant jokes about it being grape-flavored, once we perched next to the tarn, I found the perspective of the valley's descent sublime. I sat and stared for hours. I even volunteered to cook dinner for my group, despite the siren song of a nap. Somehow, over the last year, I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed cooking. I'll have to remedy that, I thought, as I contentedly stirred a pot of pasta and looked out over the world. Sitting in my tent one evening, listening to a glacial stream chuckle itself to sleep, I suddenly sat up, my mind shaken out of its pleasant drifting. I'd realized something. It would always be work. Classes, tests, sports, college, admissions, even this trip where we had walked long miles, climbed thousands of feet, carried packs weighing as much as a medium-sized child. I would never escape the work. Yet here, work came with something else. A contentedness a glow that had been missing from my life for a long time. Living in a frantic, connected, achievement-based world is a battle for anyone, and especially for my generation, but I know now that it's possible to experience joy even as we struggle. It happens a lot, actually, if we take our eyes off our destination and look around. As I sat in my tent, I thought back on that evening by the lake. On the face of it, my life was as complicated as ever. I was still a teenager, trying to figure out what my future would hold, but at least for a moment, when I looked at the sun setting upon the glacier, I could loosen my grip on the perfection that had driven me so constantly, and focus instead on the perfection that was already there, right in front of me. It's Savani and Sabine, and we're here to talk to you about the modern age of exploration. It's unlike any we've ever seen. The frontiers are not just physical, they're intellectual, cultural, ethical. And there's reason to be hopeful, especially if we lead with courage and curiosity. We want you to lead with us by joining Hidden Compass, the Alliance. As an ally, you'll unlock new ways to engage with storytellers and explorers. Each year, you'll decide who wins our Pathfinder Prize, and you'll also score behind-the-scenes access to expeditioners, exclusive content from our journalists, and tickets to some badass nerd events. But most of all, you'll be part of a movement that believes journalism, science, history, and hope are worth defending. A movement that champions the discoveries of the modern era, one remarkable story at a time. Join us at hiddencompass.net. 
And now it's our pleasure to bring on the writer behind this story. Brandon McWilliams is a writer and outdoor educator based in Seattle. He got his start in the outdoors in the oak forests of Berkeley's Tilden Park and on the granite of the Sierras. Now he can usually be found climbing rocks or getting overly excited about moss in the North Cascades. And I have to interrupt his his introduction to add that it's impossible to be overly excited about moss. Um, but Brandon writes a little bit of everything at this point, And his main focus is on stories that look outside of the purely human and hopefully help people think a little more deeply about how they treat the world around them. He also has a brown spotted Dalmatian and wants to open a bakery one day. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're uh, we're excited to chat with you. We both love this story. I'm also excited to talk about this bakery later, but uh, we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> but let's just start at the beginning. We kind of like to see how these stories turn into stories, how these concepts become stories when we talk to to the writers we work with. So how did this experience you had when you were 17 in the Cascades, how did that become a story idea for you? Yeah, um, it was kind of a, a retrospective story where I had this experience and wasn't really writing at the time. I'd always liked stories and stuff, but didn't really consider myself a writer. But when I got into college, I started dabbling and I was kind of mining my history for things that would be interesting to write about and was thinking back to this experience on these peaks in the Cascades and had enough time to ruminate on how formative an experience it was. Um, so decided to just try to jot something down and it kind of grew out of that. We had a bit of back and forth at the beginning of this process, Brandon and in preparing for this podcast, I went back to look at old email correspondence and I found that I had actually wrote to you and said, uh, and I quote, this piece isn't the right fit for Hidden Compass. <laughs> uh, which just shows, you know, how much the idea shifted and how persistence can often pay off. But can can we talk a little bit about how the story idea shifted through our conversations? Oh, yeah. It changed a lot over the course of kind of its lifespan. Because, um, yeah, it started off as a very kind of run-of-the-mill, just I went to the mountains and then it was pretty. Which, you know, it's fine. That has that, that, you know, that has its place. But when I was working with you, Sabine, it was... You were able to kind of pull out more of the bones underneath it. Pulling out a little bit more of the kind of developmental things and generational aspects um, that I think I may have been like dancing around in that piece, but didn't really, I guess, recognize as a part of that piece yet. Yeah. Well, I, I think you deserve a little bit more credit for the original <laughs> story idea. It was a little bit more than I went to the mountains and it was pretty. It was <laughs> about this really challenging experience that you had personally. But what we love to do at Hidden Compass is to just push our contributors a bit into, or sometimes a lot, into the uncomfortable <laughs> and to ask questions such as, what does your experience mean for humankind um, or for your entire generation? And so, and that's where we get our layered stories, which we love. Um, so, you know, it was your own story, but then it also in a way became the story of your generation. What was it that drove you to tell each of these, your story and your generation's story and what, what drove you to tell them together? 
I think that's one of the points where working with you all was able to push me into the extending myself a little bit because I was comfortable, you know, telling my own story. You know, I have that experience, but I didn't really feel, I don't know, at that point, I wasn't really in a place where I was like, I will tell everyone's story. Um, but you'd be able to use my experience as kind of a microcosm. So yeah, part of that was, I think, just our, our working. But I, as we were working and as I was kind of ruminating on the story, I was seeing a lot of parallels um, from things that I had been talking with uh, friends about um, and things I had seen in my classmates and you know peers. So that's also kind of where a little bit of the seeds of this may be something more than just my own personal experience started to crop up. Then we were able to go in and confirm that with some data and I was able to talk to a couple more people that, yeah, these are some trends that are starting to show up. So, yeah, it was a slow kind of build into this larger story. There's a lot to dig into in this, and I want to get to that. But before I do, I want to take a step back because this story wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been persistent after Sabine's initial rejection. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to ask you about that. I mean, what was it like for you as a young writer coming back to an editor who said the story isn't a right fit to try and figure out which, what version of this story would be the right fit. Yeah. I mean, that was very scary. I mean, that was legitimately my first, this piece is like my first real published work. And so I had no experience where I, <laughs> I remember Sabine sending that back and being very kind about that. But I was like, okay, I believe you. It's not, it's not a fit. (laughs) You're right. Um, I think I still believed that. Um, If I remember correctly, my mom was like, well, maybe just give it another shot. It was a little bit of an outside push. I was like, go mom. Yeah. She's she's good at prodding me into doing more stuff. Um, But yeah, it just needed that little bit of external validation to be like, well, who knows? You can just see at least how you could improve it for next time. Maybe it isn't a fit for the, the, you know, the magazine, but um, maybe it'll give you some, some tips. Okay. And well, well, yeah, I mean, the tips were in there because we try and get back to everybody at at Hidden Compass. Siv and I both have been freelance journalists and know that more often than not, you just don't even get a response. But sometimes rejections are mean that the editor is really invested <laughs> in a relationship with the writer. And I think in that email, because I, I scanned through it, it was, it was a longer email, you know, it's not the right fit. And here's why. And that's kind of an open door for contributors to say, okay, well, here's here's a fit that is that does meet these criteria, or maybe there's another story in here that I want to tell. And so sometimes a rejection is not always rejection. Sometimes it is though. Sometimes you have to take no for an answer. <laughs> I don't want to open the, the floodgates to hidden compass for everyone to say, <laughs> I heard on your podcast that when you say no, you don't really mean it. <laughs> but you know, there's something to be said for reading for taking constructive criticism and feedback and seeing how you could grow from that and being a journalist and a writer actually being in any career, uh, that's a good skill to build. And it is such a difficult skill for a lot of writers who've been in the industry for a long time, but I don't think we've made it clear how old you were at this point. <laughs> so how, how old were you? you were in college when you pitched this story? I was, I think when I first pitched it, 
I think I was probably about 19 ish. I think it maybe came out when I was 20. Um, but yeah, early, early writing, early, you know, yeah, still very much in college. I think it was sophomore year of college. It's such a difficult thing for a lot of writers to, to put themselves back out there once they've been rejected. And so it's great that you did. And we're so glad that you did because of this story that ended up being a story that we loved to publish. Yeah. I think I also had a little bit of the benefit of naivety um, (laughs) (laughs) where, you know, as I've continued to write, I've definitely found myself settling into the, well, it's another rejection, move right along, Um, Mm. which you you get a lot of them as a writer. Um, Yes, you do. Yeah. It is, it is so valuable. I think when you can come back to something like that and, when editors give you that door. I I think there's also something to be said for playing to your strengths, which sometimes don't seem like strengths at the beginning. And, you know, as a young writer, you might think, oh my gosh, I'm a teenager. And so what do I have to contribute? But how many teenagers are publishing stories out there? I mean, not, you know, there are some, but in a way you have a unique perspective that someone who is perhaps a more seasoned journalist, they don't have that. And so what might seem like a weakness might, in fact, be a strength. And that that played into this story, because the fact that you were young when the story took place, the fact that you were young when you pitched it was a huge part of the narrative. Oh, yeah. And that was definitely something that I think we worked with to pull out a little bit more, because not something I really recognized at that point, but you definitely did. So my theme in this interview is going to be you know, continuing to take a step back because I want to go back a little further. <laughs> Tell us about how this trip came to be at all. Yeah. So it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. And I had become aware of Knowles, I think a year or two. Knowles was the program I did this through. It was National Outdoor Leadership School. My dad had a friend who had mentioned it to him and he thought it was a really cool idea and mentioned it to me. And I was like, oh, these, these look like really cool trips, but goodness gracious, they are long and expensive. So I had been like toying this with my parents. Um, they said, well, you know, once during high school, we can do like some, some interesting thing, some trip. My school did enrichment week trips, which would go a variety of places. And they said, you can do one of those, or maybe we can look at doing something with Knowles. And I said, let's do that. That looks cool. I'd been in the, Pacific Northwest a little bit in my childhood, but never really much more than that. So I decided to sign up for the month-long mountaineering course in the Northern Cascades, which is all new to me. I actually came right out of another camp, spent three weeks in the woods, came back for two days, and then turned right around (laughs) and went back into the woods for a month. So coming back to school after that was definitely a little bit of a uh, a shock having cars and things, but um, <laughs> I bet. Oh yeah, I think in different ways. I know I've experienced that coming from a place where there were no people, no cars, and all of a sudden the tiny town feels like a bustling metropolis. Oh yeah, I was in outside of Mount Vernon up in the Skagit Valley up here, and I just remember coming back on my last day and being like, "It's so loud and bright." <laughs> Oh my gosh. And like, it's in a converted dairy in like the foothills of the Cascades. There's nothing there, but yeah. <laughs> so I think this is a good time to mention that the theme of the season of, of this season of the podcast is what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> and 
so this trip had kind of that moment. It had a, had a little bit of, of you know, several of those moments of what have I done? Oh, that you talk about a little bit in this story, but but tell us more about that because there's a scene where you're caught in a rainstorm and you're exhausted, and you kind of seem to think that it was a lost cause. And is that how you felt, or was there still some hope that you were holding on to? There was definitely a lot of ups and downs on that trip. I think as pretty natural, but one of the biggest things, the reasons I was doing this trip, was to kind of prove to myself whether the outdoors and being outside was in fact something I cared about to the degree that I thought I did. Um, Cause I'd grown up being outside. Um, it was a lot of kind of my identity, but kind of at that point in high school, I was like, is this really, or is this just kind of the remnants of childhood nostalgia? So I entered that trip kind of with that, question in mind and the first like four days of the trip were solid bushwhacking through just deep deep brush and like berry bushes while it was raining with big packs and i was like nope it's not i don't like the outdoors anymore (laughs) (laughs) Um, just because you know it was hard it was a really hard start to the trip but even within those really hard moments there were still I remember these moments of of wonder. I think I write about those a little bit in the piece of there was like this just massive rock in the middle of the stand of these old growth cedar. We just like came across it. And I remember having that like kind of like sinking in your the pit of your stomach of like, wow, this is amazing. And as the trip went on, it was still hard. Um, but there were more and more of those moments of like, ah, this feels like a place that I want to be or a type of a type of experience I want to have. Yeah. I, I love this running metaphor, the metaphor there for life, for living life of, you know, I think a lot of us sometimes have these moments of hoping that life is going to be skipping through blackberry fields and the sunshine. And that's, you know, and life is not like that, obviously. And sometimes when we we have to push ourselves to extremes and seeking refuge to find that refuge within ourselves. I really identified with your character, with your narrator's journey in that I had a, I had a similar feeling. I, I joined the Peace Corps and I had this image in my mind of what it would be like. And of course, it was really challenging, but also it was it was that metaphor of, you know, this isn't an escape. This is almost a lesson. Is Is that how you felt during your experience as well? Yeah, it was. I was kind of thinking of like, ah, this will be my time to commune with the woods and be in nature. But no, it was, it was a lot of growth, I think, and a lot of learning kind of both like what I could do and also that I could lead and that I could be in these places in different ways that wasn't just pleasant, but was still meaningful. That makes sense. Definitely. One of the things I always enjoy talking about with people when we talk about travel and and how to travel better is this idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. And the amazing, remarkable things and lessons that can come out of being comfortable with that feeling. And there's so much of that in this story, which is a big part of why it resonated with me. 
Did you already know at this point that it was something you were going to write about? I mean, how much writing were you doing at 17? Was this on the table or was it just something that came about later when you decided that you were going to start writing? Yeah, I was not even considering writing at that point. Um, I'd always liked English. Writing is something that kind of snuck up on me. I always loved stories and I'd always, you know, done well in English classes and stuff, but never really, never really did any writing other than like some childhood scribbles. I remember I brought a, a journal on that trip, fully expecting to have, you know, my memoirs written out and have a whole adventure log. And I found it recently and hey, it's like two pages, a couple doodles, some notes. There's nothing. There's like nothing in there. <laughs> I was like, oh, this will be such a good memory. Nope. Nothing. So, um, I mean, my follow up question there would be, you know, as we're a journalistic publication. And so you, you only had a couple pages of notes uh, to reference in writing the story. How did you because the scenes are so evocative. Did you just write because this was burned forever into your memory? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of pictures, which was helpful. Um, so, you know, pictures are worth a thousand words, so they say. So those were able to bring back some of these memories, but there were a lot of those moments like that. The mossy boulder moment was just, it's just in there. Yeah. There's been, there was a lot of those moments where, um, they just kind of were cemented. And I think that trip also lent itself to keeping those moments. There's a lot of quiet time and time where we were just moving um, in, in silence, you know, doing our own thing. So there's a lot of time to kind of sit and marinate with those thoughts rather than being busy and moving, which I think I have found I can lose stuff a little bit more readily. You said that writing snuck up on you. And I kind of want to know more about that before we move on. So when and how, how did writing sneak up on you? Because it's now a career. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of big sneak up. And I'd like to know more about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, like I said, it always been something that I enjoyed. Um, I was kind of a voracious reader and knew knew what I liked in terms of stories and writing. And I got really lucky with a series of just wonderful professors and classes in college. Like my very first fall term of my freshman year, first class, it was like a gen ed. Um, and it was environmental literature um, with a professor that is still, I think, one of my favorite people of all time that really showed me that writing can be more than just like the classics, American lit, it can be very functional, but also very grounded. Because that had kind of been always my my issue with English is like, I enjoyed it, but it felt too removed from some of like the real world problems that I was more focused on. Um, and that class really kind of gave me permission to dive in and say, okay, now this can be something that is meaningful and grounded and kind of feeds both sides of my passion. And then the there was a final for that class that really started my kind of budding writing. Um, and then the first personal writing, I remember like a story I finished was from my first English class that I took when I decided, all right, I guess I'm just doing this now. 
where we were doing practice for critical literary analysis, like critical literary analysis on where the wild things are. We read through that that book in like a psychoanalytical lens, and then we read through it in a post-colonial lens. And it was a really mm-hmm. cool exercise, but it made me start thinking about that book a lot. And so I did kind of a funky, weird version of where the wild things are. And that was my first, I think, personal story that I finished. And then it just snowballed. From I love that the sound of that, that class and those exercises and that assignment. That's fascinating. It was lovely. Makes me miss college. Oh, me so too. <laughs> <laughs> I already miss it. It's been two months. <laughs> well, I mean, that I think that's part, at least for me, and I can't speak for Savani, but it's part of why I became a journalist in a way is that you're almost still in college. You, you have deadlines and you're writing essays and you're interviewing people and you're learning things constantly. It's absolutely wonderful. I want to talk about the other characters in your story, Brandon. So you are the main character and there's this character of nature. Everyone else is kind of distanced. It, it creates a feeling mm, of a solitary feeling that's very powerful. Was this a conscious choice from the beginning? Uh, how did you decide to bring in, for instance, the dialogue of these amorphous voices who are telling you how to live your life? I just want to point out that this is Sabine's step back question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Seth. Good step back. I can do it too, see? <laughs> I think part of that came about from me being a new writer and not feeling super comfortable with writing other people yet. Um, huh. Like I, I knew my perspective and I knew how that looked to me and how that felt, but I didn't feel like I had the right necessarily to put words in other people's mouths. So I think that was part of it. And the other part was that, yeah, this was kind of related to that, I guess this was, was my experience. And I knew that I had to twist some of the characters slightly, like some of those amorphous voices didn't necessarily say all of those exact words, but the the message was there. So I didn't want to say precisely who or you know speaking those words. Um, it was more of the influence of kind of the the wider world rather than an individual person, I suppose. I can encapsulate it like that. Yeah, you can. It, and it's it's challenging as a journalist who writes personal stories to, to make these decisions of someone close to me said something that's really an important part of this story. Do I call them out? Do I attribute it to them? How far do I go with this? And luckily in your case, Brandon, for this story, it worked really well to have all this cacophony of, of voices kind of shouting at you. And so it, that actually fit really well into the story. Yeah. I mean, I remember that kind of thinking about that for a minute as I was writing it and thinking like there wasn't any one line or one moment that really was a turning point. It was the cumulative effect of all of these small things. It was like the death by a thousand cuts. So like the individual people or the individual statements didn't really ultimately matter. It was the, the weight of all of them together. It definitely worked. Tell us 
about your intellectual journey with this story, your intellectual trajectory? How did putting your experience in the context of your generation as a whole affect your view or understanding of the the story you were writing? Because it, it's a big leap to go from this is my experience to this is what's happening in my generation. And these two things are connected. Yeah. I suppose some of those wider themes, the themes of my generation were present in those original or those early drafts. Um, but I will say Sabine definitely put that idea in my head of like, maybe this, there's more, more of a story here or other people's stories here. And I think once you mentioned that, then that got me thinking of, Oh, okay. Yes. These are things that seem like they've been resonating with people. And the few people that I shared bits and pieces of the early drafts with had expressed things are like, Oh yeah. Like I, I feel part of that. I like definitely think that that's, that's something I, I resonate with. So I think some of the seeds were there. And then once, once that idea was in my head, there's more and more, again, no specific moments, but little, little ideas and little, like the, the cumulative effect of all of these conversations and anecdotes I'd had with my peers saying like, oh, you know, I got to do more. Like there's all this stuff to do, you know, seeing the like, kind of panic, um, especially coming out of high school, I think kind of made its way in there. And then I confirmed those suspicions, like I mentioned, with a little bit of research, just to make sure I wasn't completely talking about a bubble or just my little microcosm, um, to make sure that these were in fact things that were affecting again my generation and not just my peers or my friend group. Yeah. And those statistics are quite staggering, you know, something like 90% of Generation Z suffering from anxiety or depression, you know, all of these things. Uh, Svani asked about your intellectual journey, and, and now I have to step in and ask about your emotional journey. What was it like to do that research and and to think about how these things are affecting your generation as a whole and putting that in the context of your own story? Interestingly, I feel like it was almost a little bit of a validation there. Um, cause they're very, they're powerful feelings and, you know, stress and anxiety is, I think, very much a part of my generation, unfortunately. Um, but a lot of it is hard to pinpoint. It is, I think uh, this is my theme, the cumulative effect, um, <laughs> of everything. And it's something that I'd felt and it's something I'd seen in my, my friends and peers. But making those connections and kind of doing that digging was kind of gratifying. Like, ah, this is, this isn't just normal. And this isn't like, we're not just all being teenagers. That is part of it, but it's, it's, there's something more than that. And there's something going on here. So it's, it's hard because it's recognition that people are not doing great. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of challenge and there's a lot of people experiencing some pretty, painful things, but it was also gratifying. And I think a little bit unifying too. Like, okay. We're all experiencing similar things. We're all kind of in the same boat now. Did those realizations, did they impact what you wanted the story's message to be the, the broader resonance of the story when you wrote the piece, did realizing that change or, or, you know, even just what were your intentions when you wrote the piece? 
how did you want it to resonate? I mean, when I first set out to write this piece, it was, can I, can I publish a piece? Um, but I think it quickly became, can I express this feeling, this reality that I think other people are feeling too, in a way that people will connect with, uh, people will get, because I can say something that was very prevalent. I think a lot of people were, you know, a lot of my generation was feeling, but people talking about it, there wasn't a lot of stories about this. Or stories written from people who are living it. You exactly. know, I, I had noticed other publications were running pieces about what was happening to Generation Z, but I didn't yeah. see a lot of pieces from members of Generation Z. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of the like, you know, is this just all in my head? Is it all just me and my experience? Um, so part of it, I think, ultimately became expressing that it's not just it's not just you. It's not just a personal thing. This is a, a larger experience as well as a personal journey. Mm. So you talked a bit about how you felt in doing this research and seeing these connections. How did you feel about publishing this piece under your name with that context woven in and this kind of message? Yeah, it was nerve wracking. It was exciting, but it was nerve wracking because you know, there was a lot of very personal stuff in there. Um, there was, and I was, you know, is, how is this going to be received by my family and friends? So of course my parents being the lovely people they are wanted to show everyone. Thank you. But also, (laughs) (laughs) um, so there was a, you know, some trepidation there. And there was also a little bit of a, an imposter syndrome of like, am I, why, why should I be the one to say these things? There's probably people that are, that have definitely certainly experienced much more or more firsthand the effects I've tied talk about in this piece. So kind of the, why, what gives me the right to say these things, but um, ultimately it's, it's a story. And I think it, it helped that it was grounded in my experience. I said, this is what I have. And this is, what I see. So yeah, it was a big mixed bag. Definitely. I, I think the story is powerful because it was grounded in your experience and someone else could tell a story grounded in their experience that would also be powerful, but that doesn't negate the need for the story that you told or the importance of the story that you told. And I know for us, we were excited to be a publication that was telling the story from the perspective of someone who was living it and not just from the perspective of people who were observing it and talking about it. That meant a lot to us as a publication. Yeah. And I, I want to, I want to underscore what Savani was saying about that. There, there are many voices in the global conversation. We talk a lot at hidden compass about the global conversation and what we as a publication contribute to it, but that's really what it is. It's a conversation where you know, you aren't the only voice. And so there doesn't have to be just one story about this. There there can be, and there should be many, and they should come from people who are having all different kinds of experiences. And so that, that imposter syndrome and that comparison is, it's tempting as a journalist and a writer and even a publication to go there, but it's almost easily resolved when you realize there doesn't have to be just one version of this. Certainly. So, you're a recent college graduate. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, that's almost a, a 
parallel transition to the one that you were first experiencing in the story. It's, it's a time of great transition. You're leaving one sort of structured institution and set up for another, and now you're losing the structure. Yep. But given the time that's taken place between when you took this trip and when you wrote the story and what's happened in your life since, do you have a different relationship to this piece now than you did when you wrote it? Hmm. Yeah, so much of it does parallel still kind of what the current experience is, but it also seems so different in so many ways, just you know, coming out of this last year and having all these other experiences. I feel like reading back on this story, it feels very, it still feels extremely pertinent, but I also kind of almost look back on it in like, um, how do I put this into words? Like, just wait. <laughs> You'll experience so much more soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of both a little bit eerie and like, oh, just wait. You'll experience so much more soon. <laughs> but it's also kind of cool because, you know, there's so much more to explore from that. I think you make an excellent point, which is when we write these stories about our lives and we write them sort of in the moment that we're in, it's always fascinating to look back and see what has changed. And then the last 18 months, almost two years have been a particularly big change. And so oh, yeah. it makes sense that that, that, you know, oh, just wait feeling would be there. Yeah. It's been interesting to look back on the pressure that I was feeling then and that I expressed you know, my generation feeling of the, you got to achieve more, you got to do. And thinking, I was thinking, like, is that still something I'm feeling? Um, does that still feel true to my generation? And I think it does, but it has taken on a different flavor, um, especially coming out of these last you know, 18 months or so. It feels less of an achievement drive um, and more of almost like a, a values drive of like, you got to do something that is meaningful now because look what could happen. So might as well do it now and make things better than just wait. Hmm. This is so interesting because the previous episodes, the episode that aired before this one, uh, we had this conversation with Victoria Sanderson and she brought up this idea of one of herself's this version of herself that was at the time she was 24 years old when this, her story took place. And this relationship that we often have with our own narrators of pieces where <laughs> we feel that distance and we feel everything that has happened since those experiences took place. And sometimes there's judgment. Sometimes there's, oh, you have no idea what you're doing or what you have in store. And there's also compassion too, of looking back at yourself and thinking, oh my gosh, the things that I went through. Yeah. The other selves piece actually really resonates, especially with this piece, because I spent the last or this summer working almost full circle in the same area in the Cascades as a, a wilderness instructor, kind of on the other side of the dynamic there that I was writing about in this piece. Um, and that was really interesting to kind of step back and think about seeing kids of a similar age talking to them, but then being the ones kind of facilitating that and watching them going through those journeys was just fascinating and brought back a lot of those 
memories and feelings from this piece. Tell us more about that, Brandon. Tell us more about those experiences with those kids and what you saw in them and how you felt about that. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of really interesting stuff. I was really surprised by the level of maturity, I think, that a lot of these kids were bringing. I don't try to, but I think even I can underestimate kind of what middle and high schoolers are bringing to the table. Yeah, the kids. Sure. Even though I'm not that far removed, but we were having these deep conversations, and they're like engaged in what's happening, and like indigenous land sovereignty, and like the future of like the climate, and like all these just deep conversations. I was really impressed about what they were bringing in that, but then also seeing the weight of these last two years on these kids, and how so much of it was just being around other people at all had such a huge effect. Part of me was trying to, I was thinking like, I need to do more programming. We can do some more leadership development stuff, but then just seeing how much meaning they got out of just being together and forming relationships was really powerful. Yeah. Seeing both like the drive from these kids and then resilience and kind of some of the scars was just, it was very moving. It was really powerful. Wow. This is an incredible segue to my next question, our next question, which is the era you wrote about your teenage years has passed. And in a way, the world you wrote about is no longer here either uh, because of what's happened over the last few years in this pandemic. The fast pace of life that what felt oppressive in this story was shut down for a lot of people. It was accelerated for others. You know, you're talking about people coming together now. Do do you see us in a different world now? Is it different from the time you wrote about? I mean, you know, of course it's different. Um, (laughs) It's always different, especially now. But yes and no. Um, A lot of the terrain has changed. But I think mostly what it's done is it's just kind of intensified what's already there. Uh, Intensified the feelings of like, issues that we know about, they're still the same issues, but now we, they feel even more urgent. And the drive for things to happen and like make those connections, they're still really present, I think even more so now. Obviously, there's more on the table now. <laughs> we needed more, but it just feels like things have almost concentrated. I'll go one step further with this too and say that this interview is going to air in in November or December of this oh, year. Um, how how does what you were trying to achieve in this story when you wrote it in the before times, how does it resonate <laughs> now? Oh, in the before times. Yes. Um, yes. Man. Yeah, I think it, honestly, I think it resonates all the more. Mm. That stress isn't gone. I think it has only increased. I did... One of my last papers in college was about eco-anxiety and the health effects on kids, mm-hmm. which is only more pertinent. So I think a lot of these feelings, at least in broad strokes, are certainly still still there. Um, they've definitely taken on new faces, but the core is there. But it's also, I think there's been a, a little bit of a catalyst from this last two years, year and a half. You know, there's been so much time alone and in isolation and was just all of these wild news stories and things just one after another. 
it feels like people are more inclined to take this, you know, do the, do the things, take the steps to make change, which is encouraging. I think can also help some of these, the, that stress. Yeah. I get to ask you the easiest question you're going to get all day. Oh. What is your greatest hope for this story? Oh, yes. An easy question. Thank you. You're you're welcome. We only ask easy questions here. We continue the theme of just pushing you. (laughs) Exactly. I appreciate it. I promise we'll talk about the bakery soon. Yes. (laughs) My hope for this story. My biggest hope is really that it continues to resonate with people. Most things I write, I want them to do something and I want them to connect especially for this piece, I hope that if people, especially young people read it and see, get some comfort out of it or see that they're not alone, that their experiences um, recognized, but also that there is joy and there are ways to get through them too. That's my ultimate hope is that it, it does some good for someone, whether that's just letting someone get through the day or, sparking them to go, I don't know, plant a tree, all the better. Hmm. I think I'm just going to jump to the bakery question now, which is that you promised us a bakery in your bio. So when is it coming and what will you be selling? Yes. What are you selling? I'm working on it. Oh, what won't I be selling? I've got a whole plan. It's going to be an index. It's going to be great. Yeah. That, you know, it's a pipe dream, but. Have you always enjoyed baking? Oh my goodness, yes. I've always enjoyed baking. Um, and I've also been very much a bakery uh, appreciator as well. My <laughs> father and I are both big uh, bakery hounds. So nice. I'm doing my research now. Got to go wow. try all the bakeries before I can start one. What are your go-to <laughs> pastries or... Mm, or baked goods? Yeah. Ooh. To make... Um, I make a lot of cookies. I make... A lot of shortbread and buckle. Um, buckle. It's like a almond cake. It's really nice and dense. It has fruit on top. Ooh, oh, yes. It's the perfect one. You can eat for breakfast. You can eat for dinner. <laughs> you can eat it all day long. Um, but when I'm at bakeries, sticky buns, bear claws, nice, nice croissant. Yeah, hard to go wrong. So we will need to be your. You know, your taste testers when the time comes. You'll be first on the list. Quality control. <laughs> first, this is great. This is I, this is my favorite. One of my favorite things about these uh, these interviews is that we put people on the spot and then we have them on record promising us things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you said. We're going to be sitting. Good. We're going to be sitting in a treehouse for free. We're going to be you know, first on the list as taste testers for a bakery. I mean, hey, <laughs> I like Those how people. this is working out for us. I know. When is season three airing? <laughs> <laughs> We're getting sticky buns in the mail in like a couple of years. What? Where did this go? <laughs> That's where. So mm. what are you up to right now? Because I know the bakery is in the future, but what have you been up to since you published the story, since you graduated? What's going on in your life? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, <laughs> spent the summer, as I mentioned, in the in the mountains working with the Y, actually, which has been really fun. Um, and now I'm moving into an AmeriCorps position um which will be through this year doing environmental education in in high schools environmental advocacy with kids and it should be really cool a whole nother flavor of environmental ed 
Yeah. And then from there, who knows? I'm toying with some grad school, toying with some jobs. We'll see what the future brings me. I think that AmeriCorps experience is going to be great. I was a Teach for America Corps member, so separate but housed within AmeriCorps. Very cool. And it is quite an experience. And it's great to be able to work with the next generation, particularly when you're just out of college and you don't feel that far removed from them. (laughs) I'm not, (laughs) I haven't lost all credibility yet. (laughs) But, but they're going to, but they see you as an adult, which is very, very weird. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) It is weird when that happens, isn't it? Um, Sometimes it still is. Uh, Brandon, are you are you writing? I am slowly, very slowly writing. Um, I have just finished actually a, a poetry manuscript of all things. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, eco poetics. So that's something I've been sort of shopping around, and now that that project is done, I'm looking around for what's what's my next one. I'd like to get some more essays out some stories so yeah there's things in the works well that's fantastic congratulations on getting to that stage with a bigger project like that that's always a huge step thank you and uh you'll absolutely have to keep us posted on that as well because we will want to celebrate that (laughs) but if there's a project that you have done that's out there that people can go to and that you want people to go to and see read listen explore is there something out there and where can they find it yeah, I only have little bits and bits and pieces out right now. There's a rather grumpy op-ed I have in Seattle Times, and then something that is legitimately actually very cool. There's a little literary magazine called Lucky Jefferson that I was mm-hmm. able to work with. So definitely go look at all the stuff they do. It's wonderful. They do really cool, kind of interesting, interesting stuff. So I was able to work, be in, and work in one of their issues and then guest edit their next one. Um, so check out Riff, check out everything they do. They're wonderful. Good people. That's really cool. Well, Brandon, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and to be able to catch up with you. And it was great working with you and, and getting to work with you again for this. So thanks for making the time. Thank you. It's been so much fun. This has been Hidden Compass, the podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review and check out the show notes to continue down the rabbit hole. You can also support us by contributing to our magazine story campaigns, buying tickets to our events, or by joining the Alliance at hiddencompass.net. That's also where you can find more stories, meet more storytellers and subscribe to our newsletter. The music for this podcast, Come Together, is by Henrik Olsen. Our show artwork is by Grand Failure. Podcast production by my fellow co-founder, Savani Babu. This story was originally published in the winter 2019 issue of Hidden Compass, the magazine. Every story has an alias. A constant push for perfection was once known to us as a search for certainty. Thanks so much for listening. And we won't see you next week because this is the last episode of season two. But never fear, as you've just heard, there are plenty of ways to continue exploring with us. We look forward to seeing you in any of the Hidden Compass realms, where you'll find more stories and storytellers venturing to the frontiers of courage and curiosity.